Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're taping this conversation on Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. Early voting has begun in the elections of this year. It runs through October 31st. Absentee balloting is ongoing as well. And election day is coming up Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. It's fast approaching. So get ready and get out there and vote. If you haven't yet, make your voice heard in these very important New York City elections. They will, of course, determine the new class of city elected officials, the next city government taking office on January 1st. Many of the seats in city government are turning over due to term limits. As you, of course, know, listening to this show, there'll be a new mayor many other new office holders from the city controller through number of borough presidents, many new city council members, but there are also some incumbents on the ballot seeking re-election like the public advocate, uh, the Queensboro president, a number of city council members, a smaller number though than those who will be elected for the first time. And so it's time to vote, get out there, be ready and get involved. It's also important to know there's five ballot questions on state constitutional amendments where you can vote yes or no on five proposals that have passed through the state legislature and are put on the ballot to amend the state constitution. I'm not gonna get into the details on that now, but we have you covered at GothamGazette.com if you're looking to get up to speed on those five ballot questions and really you should make your voice heard on those questions as well. If you're looking for more information beyond what we have at Gotham Gazette, you can go to electnyc.org to help you get ready to vote. And there are, of course, other resources at different news publications and government sites like NYC Votes to learn from. So today on the podcast, we are looking ahead, we're looking back, we're, we're discussing some recent very important city government action and key issues facing the city, and we're looking ahead to the next city government. In just a moment, my conversation with City Council Member Adrian Adams, a Democrat who represents parts of Queens. She chairs the council's public safety committee. She's seeking re-election this year to the council, and she's looking to become the next speaker of the city council in a vote that will not be uh, made by the public, that will, it will be made by the members of that legislative body, which chooses its speaker uh, in January. And so that is a very important uh, race going on, mostly behind the scenes at this point, but about to get a lot more attention as we get closer to that. So we're about to get into a lot of different issues with council member Adrian Adams in just a minute, including some of her support for Eric Adams to be the next mayor of the city and what she's looking for from him if he wins, which is of course expected, though anything can happen in politics. Real quick, before we get into it with city council member Adrian Adams, if you missed any recent episodes of the show, find Max Politics wherever you get your podcasts, or we have all the episodes at the Gotham Gazette website if you'd rather listen through there. I've had some really great conversations in recent weeks and months, both with state officials, advocates, experts, city officials, advocates, experts, uh, looking at things at the state level and the city level. Of course, so much attention on the city elections, but then also shifting to the state level with the shift of power from Governor Andrew Cuomo to Governor Kathy Hochul. So I've spoken with State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli here on the show, Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and a number of others. At the city level, we're talking with several city council members with very important oversight responsibilities and who are also looking to become the next speaker of the city council. And in recent weeks, I've spoken with 
uh, Republican mayoral nominee Curtis Sliwa, with uh, consultant Chris Coffey, who uh, helped run Andrew Yang's mayoral campaign and has been a longtime city government official and consultant, and a bunch of other great guests, including uh, city council member Eric Ulrich of Queens, uh, who is one of the few Republicans in the council and had a lot of interesting perspective, but also notably a supporter of Eric Adams here in this mayoral campaign. All right, so a lot of great guests. Find one or more episodes of the show anytime you'd like, wherever you'd like on your podcast streams or the Gotham Gazette site. City Council Member Adrian Adams, how are you? I'm doing well, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very happy to speak with you. Uh, last time we spoke directly, I was moderating a, a panel you were involved with about public safety. And of course, that responsibility you have in the, in the city council is a, is a pretty big one. And you've been chairing some recent hearings of the public safety uh, committee, some really important topics. Um, so let's start there. Uh, that oversight work, you've held hearings recently about the NYPD Special Victims Division and about more generally the responsibilities of the NYPD, what should be a police responsibility, what should maybe not be, or a hybrid. Um, so what are a couple, <laughs> what are a couple of things out of these hearings that you're thinking about when it comes to your job uh, as the chair of this committee and oversight of the of the police department and public safety in the city? Yeah, it, it has very it has been very, very uh, interesting. Um, at best, and uh, extremely challenging to have oversight over public safety, uh, the NYPD and other uh, agencies within the city of New York that fall under public safety. It has been very enlightening, Ben, um, to uncover through our oversight committees just, you know, how many holes there are in the system. Uh, you mentioned the, the last hearing that we had. Um, it was oversight uh, with the women and gender uh, equity Committee and the Public Safety Committee. And this joint hearing exposed several flaws, you know, within the um, SVD uh, division of the NYPD. It was an extremely troubling hearing. Uh, I'm just going to call it the Christine hearing, because what came out was a series of uh, uh, testimonials from survivors of sexual assault, rape, in um, just heinous crimes committed against uh, against these women who were brave enough to tell their story in our oversight hearing and, and expose the fact that their cases have yet to be resolved. Um, and not just that, but the care or lack of care that was given to them through the Special Victims Division of the uh, NYPD was um, was terrible. I can't even make it sound uh, good. Uh, it, it was terrible. The the care or lack thereof, the care, the, the lack of sensitivity, um, and the general disregard for what these victims had gone through, the trauma that they had gone through was minimal. It was minimized. Uh, it, it was it was trivialized, uh, and it was discarded in some cases their accounts of what happened to them was discounted in too many cases uh, and, and just making it seem that they were uh, in fact the perpetrators and not the victims of these horrible, horrible crimes. And when we asked the difficult questions, the responses were, uh, they were just not uh, well thought out. Uh, 
Um, they were not uh, responses that you would expect from a division of this magnitude and caliber. Uh, they were just not respected, uh, expected. Um, what we got were a lot of apologies and we got, you know, we, we are new here and this happened, you know, not on our watch. We're going to get better. We're going to do better. Well, that's all well and good, but we have victims, survivors, if you will, who have experienced horrible trauma in their lives and depended on and trusted individuals that they thought had their best interests at hand in that job and in that capacity. And what we found out was that just wasn't true. So as you, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of shakeup in the special victims division of the NYPD over the last few years. The things you're saying, the things we heard at this hearing, we've heard at, we've heard at prior hearings, we've heard testimony at different times. Do you have any confidence that things are now on a better track? What, what, you know, are there promises that have been made that really need to be followed up on? What, you know, I mean, we're about to get a new mayor and a new police commissioner, very likely, uh, all but certain. Um, you know, where do things stand now at, coming out of this hearing with these, you know, terrible testimony and a lot of excuses and promises? Yeah. Uh, what, what I hope that we have is that we have a promise from the leadership um, in SVD that follow-up will be had uh, between uh, SVD leadership and these survivors. Uh, and we have now taken names and numbers. Um, we will hold them accountable and we will follow up uh, between uh, our committee and uh, our, our uh, partnering committee. We will follow up with these survivors and with um, the SVD to ensure that, uh, that their needs have been met, that the appropriate phone calls, I mean, we're talking about evidence, Ben, that survivors had that, that uh, evidence that is lost now, that they actually led um, you know, their, their, um, their, their leaders under SVD to handle for them. They led them to evidence. Um, a lot of them spent their own money. And I mentioned in the hearing that a lot of them became their own detectives. That's preposterous to me. These survivors became their own detectives because their detectives threw them away and thought of them as lesser than, and their cases really didn't matter. At one point, one survivor was even told, look, don't call here anymore. We closed your case. So, you know, it was, it, it was the more I think about it, you know, the more appalling it all becomes. And this is a culture. I mean, this seems to be a cultural problem, yeah. not a one or two off. And and do yeah. you have some sense that the culture is being addressed by by new leadership? That the the shakeup that was announced a while back now has taken some root. You know, does it seem like there's been some culture shift? I'm going to give uh, Michael King, who is the head of um, SVD, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt at this point because, truthfully. Uh, he expressed to us that he hadn't been uh, in the role that long. I believe it was August when he started in the role, but he also uh, touted uh, his many credentials for becoming who he is right now. And that was my challenge to him. You have touted your credentials, you know, to, to these committees and to these panels, um, yet we really haven't seen 
the needle move the way that we would want to see it move, even in the smallest areas. So I, I am still going to give uh, Mr. King the benefit of the doubt. I know that after hearing the testimony of the victims that he was moved, as was the world that was watching that hearing. Uh, so he ensures us that there will be changes made uh, as far as administrative changes, hopefully uh, any other kinds of changes, uh, personnel changes that need to happen, that will happen also. But it's very, very important, uh, once again, that they know that we will hold them accountable. This hearing was critical to what happens to victims, and it was critical to make sure that everybody's got the knowledge now. This is what we've been dealing with for years. These stories are, are have just compiled one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. But to hear them now, to hear the victims, to hear parents of victims even testify that nothing has been done and that detectives have pretty much closed cases without ever, ever letting the victims or the families know that they've closed cases. It's just um, a sad state of affairs, but uh, my intention is to do the oversight that I was charged to do and mm -hmm. hold the NYPD and the SVD accountable. As you think about um, the, the all but certainty of a new police commissioner coming in in January under a new mayor, Obviously, as I mentioned, very likely to Barrick Adams, who you are close with and have supported. Uh, we can get into sort of, sort of more of the political in a minute, but um, but you know, as you look towards a new police commissioner, whether it's the Special Victims Division, maybe it's on the right track better now. Uh, things related, as we've seen these new um, Civilian Complaint Review Board charges against dozens of officers from last year's uh, Black Lives Matter protests after the killing of George Floyd. Um, uh, you know, a variety of things. We're seeing things related to uh, par parking placard reports being closed out through the 311 system that clearly aren't being dealt with, but the police department's closing them out. There, there's a sort of a systemic picture here that things are amiss and, and the department really needs a culture shift. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think the next police commissioner needs to do here or, or from your perch as the public safety chair you know, what's your sense of the culture shift that needs to take place writ large in the in the police department? And as, as I'm sure you'd be one of the first people to say, because you've said it before, and I've heard you say it before, this doesn't at all mean that people aren't giving credit to all the officers that do the right yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, but but these are real, these are real serious uh, systemic issues. Very, very serious. And I, I have to say, the next police commissioner has her work cut out for her. Uh, and that's my hope. Uh, uh, that <laughs> I will just say that you're absolutely right. The uh, management of the NYPD has been systemic. Uh, it's been intentional over the years. Uh, it's looked basically the same for decades in too many ways to express. Um, it's uh, there has to be a substantial change made in the culture of the NYPD. And that is a culture that has so much strong, uh, so many strong roots, um, you know, decades and decades of, of a lot of strength, uh, a lot of impression um, in the department. It is my hope that, um, Incoming um, officers coming into the ranks 
will have a, a new perspective. And again, it's going to have to start with the top down. And that's why I say the new commissioner really has her work cut out for her. It's going to take a lot of courage to make that impact on the NYPD um, because it is so ingrained, it is so systemic. I happen to believe in um, the uh, Democratic nominee for mayor. Uh, I believe in his background. Um, I may not necessarily agree with all of the plans that he has with regard to NYPD, but we do agree on more than we disagree on. And it is my hope that he has lived that life, that that top-down leadership will be the most effective change that the city has seen in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And as you get at uh, alluding to uh, uh, she as police commissioner, uh, Eric Adams at least has promised to name the first woman uh, NYPD commissioner. So um, if he's victorious in this election, that'll be a promise he's expected to fulfill. Um, and it'll, of course be very interesting to see if it is uh, Eric Adams, the next mayor, a former NYPD officer, former captain is the mayor. Uh, how he has promised to run the police department, as you're saying, will be uh, one of the most important things to keep tabs on. This, this other hearing about the responsibilities of the NYPD coming out of that, um, any, any new thoughts, any uh, confirmed thoughts, any major takeaways about things that should be shifted or um, returned or whatever it might be, but any major takeaways from that, that recent hearing as well? Yeah, that was another very insightful hearing, Ben. Thanks for bringing that one up as well. There, there has been so much discovery, you know, in my public safety hearings as of late, and that we we looked at reallocating and re, redistributing responsibilities of NYPD. I think the agenda called it something else, which was fine, but we the intention was to really, really take a look at a more granular view of where. Uh, NYPD responsibilities should be and where they have been, you know, over these past years, where they are most effective and where we can have other entities coming in and doing that work to allow for NYPD to do the work that they have, um, you know, that they have the uniforms on that is, you know, effective policing, public safety, keeping us safe and, um, you know, making sure that they uh, are, are visible in the full sense of public safety for the city of New York. Now, um, when we look at public safety, I happen to think that we put NYPD by themselves in public safety way too often. It's, it's a much more expansive view of public safety. So if we take NYPD out of that box and we look at public safety as mental health services, social services, uh, 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 advocates, advocacy for, for children, and a lot more, then we can have a different view and kind of push that view of NYPD being in that box by themselves, holding all of those responsibilities down. Responsibilities now that they do not necessarily want or like. So that's another very, very important aspect to think of also, because the more I question uh, our, our NYPD officers and leaders they do not necessarily want the responsibility of handling mental health challenges and, and social service challenges and other things that have fallen into their purview that have just kind of, you know, come into play 
that are now their responsibility holistically Mm -hmm. uh, within the whole department. So our oversight focused on some of those things that we can move, um, that we can move effectively, uh, that should have really never have been the responsibility of NYPD to begin with, and that those responsibilities NYPD does not necessarily want or need. Is there anything, though, under that broad category that is remove the NYPD fully or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in most instances, you subscribe to sort of more of a hybrid model where there's there might be police, you know, involved as needed, not a blanket removal of police from mental health calls or police from homelessness uh, response or whatever it might be, but that there's you know, a balance struck for whatever, which in whichever direction. Yeah, that that's correct. At least until we can master this thing um, and, and really get it to where uh, I think that we can do uh, eventually somewhere down the line. I, I think that we can graduate from that hybrid model that I think is necessary right now um, until we get the, um, the number of providers that we need, the strength and providers that we need to be this back, backbone and create this infrastructure that we need to handle um, said social services, mental health uh, services and advocacy. Uh, once we develop that infrastructure, and I don't think it's gonna take us that long. I really don't. I think that we just need to invest in that infrastructure because we've got the know-how We've got the personnel in place. All we have to do is invest in those resources uh, to build up that infrastructure. And I think we can move that hybrid along to something that will be much more stable and permanent. And the as we're speaking here late October, there's been, again, this intensification of this discussion over school safety agents. Yeah. Are they part of the NYPD? Are they part of the DOE? Uh, pretty much everybody agreeing that they serve a, a very important role. They are not armed officers in schools. They are mostly women, women of color. You know, there's a lot of, lot. Uh, a lot of confusion that sometimes happens in this discussion. Um, but anyway, uh, as, as this discussion is happening, how are you thinking about that? Um, do you, the mayor's most recent comments basically are that he didn't really want to s- switch school safety agents from PD to DOE, but the city council wanted that. Uh, and that basically it hasn't really happened. So the next mayor will, will ultimately make the decision with the next city council. What are you, what are you thinking about that discussion? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that can is definitely being kicked down the road. There's so much controversy around that issue. Uh, rightfully so. I mean, we've got a perspective that comes from some of our students that see that uniform as being a threatening presence to them, as being something that is anti who they are, uh, as being something that is out to get them. Um, and, and, and I'm thinking of the Black Lives Matter movement and all, all, you know, all things that were projected and shown around that movement as far as the visuals where uh, the police were shown there. And a lot of times, most times, I dare say, we're not in the most flattering light. So we've got the perspective of our students and some advocates speaking on um, the SSAs coming out of the school because of the emotional uh, perspective of it, because children are looking, don't criminalize us. We are students. We don't want metal detectors. We don't want to be looked at as students. I understand that perspective. And, and I'll digress a little bit. 
those of us who are people of color walking into department stores feel the same way um, when we walk into department stores and we are criminalized because we are black and brown people. So I get it. You know, I understand that perspective. The other side of the coin is that we have to protect our students. Um, we've seen this week. Oh, goodness. We've seen things that we never would want to see or expect in the schools in the city of New York. Guns being brought in by students. This is the atmosphere and the character of New York right now. We've got to face reality. So while I understand the perspective of the students and advocates that do not want the SSAs in the school, I have to also look at the perspective of school safety in all of what it means in keeping our children and our educators safe in those buildings, as well as the people who are keeping our students safe. They are, as you said, Ben, predominantly Black women, women of color, who are keeping our students safe, who do not, who do not carry guns, you know? Uh, so I've got to keep that perspective as, as well. What, what do you think about where they, where they ultimately should live in the ecosystem? Now, in, in some sense, it feels a little bit semantic, but in another sense, depending on what else comes with it, it's very real because if yeah. the safety agents are part of the NYPD, the sort of chain of command is is one of these issues where I think that's that's some of the pushback, right? Is that the school safety agents aren't armed and they're not necessarily uh, taking you know uh, certain actions, but but they're when their call goes to the the precinct, you know, armed officers are coming and and making arrests or whatever it might be, whether and they're getting a certain training there, whether and if they were with the Department of Education, it's a different type of training potentially and a different sort of chain of command that's less criminal justice system involved. Is where are you, you know, about that future discussion? You hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the training aspect, uh, because I was gonna bring that up as well. When you speak to, and I have many times and many of them, when you speak to the school safety agents, they say that there is no better training that they have received than the training that they have received through NYPD for doing the jobs that they do. Uh, they, for the most part, uh, do not feel that the DOE training would be as solid um, and uh, would be as effective as the training that they have received, you know, with NYPD. And to me, that says a whole lot, you know, uh, especially when we're talking about, and I would never want to do this, but when we're talking about unarmed individuals, um, you know, removing guns from schools and, you know, a lot of other things going on, you know, children are up against a lot these days. Our students are, they're bearing a lot through this pandemic. They've lost parents, they've lost loved ones. They're coming to school with a lot on their minds and they're trying to make their way through school at the same time. So we want to make sure that the atmosphere and the environment is the most comfortable that it can be and the most safe that it can be. So. I have to listen to the voices of those SSAs that, that say to me, the best training that I have received in this realm is the training with the NYPD. My other, my other course of thought then is when, when we think about all of that is the preparation for the DOE to take on this responsibility is a big one. It's not a small one. The DOE right now is handling children now coming in from the pandemic full time. No remote learning, 
It's tremendous. Um, and other things, right? Sure. Now we are going to give the DOE the responsibility of management of hundreds of school safety agents. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it. And I know the mayor talks about phasing in, but I'm not all the way there yet. I'm not all the way convinced that number one, this is, this is what the SSAs want. And I'm not convinced that this is what is best for the students in the schools. Very interesting. Well, it seems like that will be a discussion that will intensify much more in the new administration with the next city council and, and some decisions will have to be made come, uh, come the next city budget for sure. Um, yeah. um, so you've also, um, I wanted to, wanted to um, take a minute. You just even, you, you've, you've been quite active here. Um, you just had a press conference with the, with some correction officers. I wanted to uh, make sure that you highlighted what you're working on there. Uh, talk about troubling situations, what's happening in Rikers and other jails. Obviously we don't need to rehash for people who've been paying attention to the news, how horrifying things have been, but on a specific issue, uh, you were uh, making sure to bring some attention to the issue of sexual assault in the jails, uh, particularly of staff. Um, what's happening with that and what are you hoping to see change? Oh, what an outrage. Um, I am hoping that, well, just to give you a little background on this, um, I was raised by a mother who was a correction officer. She retired as a captain in correction and I lost her in February, my best friend. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I feel her spirit always. And when I heard the stories of women who are uh, working in the jails, correction officers, just like my mother was, I heard their stories of sexual abuse, harassment, molestation. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And all I could do was picture my mom somehow being in situations like that, that these women are in. Thankfully, I don't believe that she was ever in those types of situations because I believe that she would have let me know. But to hear these stories, untold stories that are so horrifying over women who have literally been kept in the dark because of fear of retaliation was so outrageous to me that I felt a burden. I felt their burden and I knew that I had to do something. So I've been meeting with um, the women of COBA, the Correction, uh, Correction Officers Benevolent Association, um, their uh, leadership. And I've been meeting with them over the course of months to hear their stories and to kind of figure this out. What do we do? We have a horrific situation on Rikers Island where people are dying in custody. We have a horrific situation in Rikers Island where people are, are being incarcerated and just being left in intake. Uh, a situation that is so deplorable that it seems like people are just being forgotten, forgotten about purposely during a pandemic. They are sharing coronavirus throughout the facility. And now I'm listening to women who are being sexually abused on the workplace, in the workplace, on a daily basis, and being brought back to their abusers, who they are supposed to care for in custody. What a dilemma. What a dilemma. So 
I listen to the stories. Uh, I lament with them. I shed tears with them. And then we try to figure out what on earth we can do to, number one, shed the light on this that should have been shown on this a long, long time ago. We try to figure out what to do legally with the penal system and what this is going to look like, especially given the climate at Rikers right now, where people are dying and all of this thing. And this cannot be for me in, in my headspace and us against them perspective, because there is no us against them in this horrific situation. Everybody in that hellhole is being traumatized and victimized as we sit here and speak and have this conversation today. So I'm looking at this on an equitable basis for a group of people totally, you know, correction officers have been demonized. Let's just face facts. They've been demonized, you know, as the bad guys in the situation. So I've got to some, somehow parse this space out in my mind in realizing that there have been horrible things done all, the, all around, but these particular women um, have been traumatized and continue to be victimized when they return to work, return to the duty that they are bound to do, return to the tours that their tour commanders put them on, knowing that they may be requested to escort um, by, by their, vic their victims request female officers to escort them through the facility, to their court dates, dates to their uh, infirmary um, you know, appointments. And those perpetrators, um, those requests are met uh, by the tour commanders and captains in many cases who throw the women back into the den of victimization. So what are we doing here? Um, we're looking at, again, and, and I got to say systemically, this to me is systemic racism in its ugliest form, another in its ugliest form here. We're being told that correction officers call out by the thousands, right? We're being told that there is a shortage of personnel when it comes to officers. And now we have to look at the reasons why. And those were the questions that I was asking in my hearing. Mm -hmm. Is anyone taking account of those victims who are traumatized because they know that they will be put back into abusive situations, potentially pulled into cells, groped and molested and worse? Are we, do we have any types of numbers on those, those people who can't come back to work because of the trauma? Are we logging these things? Are we tracking any kind of mechanism? What are we doing about this situation? And the answers and responses that I got were so unsatisfactory that the only thing that I could think of was, this is what we're here to do. We're here to legislate. We're here to make the law to make situations better. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to yesterday, Ben, where I held the press conference at Rikers after visiting the jail for about three hours, by the way. Again, I'd been there before. Mm -hmm. uh, but myself and members of the Black, Latino, and Asian Caucus, which I co-chair, we visited the, the jails yesterday. And then at the culmination of that visit, I scheduled a press conference with the COBA women and other victims uh, who work on Rikers Island as correction officers. And it was to announce... Uh, prospective legislation to change the penal code or the penal law 
from instances of sexual abuse um, and, and sexual assaults within the jails from um, a misdemeanor to a felony at the state level, working with our partners uh, in state government. Assembly member David Weprin was with me and said that he would be uh, instrumental in helping me to do that. In addition to that, my legislation on the council level to be introduced will have to do with that reporting that I don't have right now that would give us the statistics and the data that we need so badly to make sure that these women are counted and that they know that they matter. We are right now in the midst of a Me Too movement, and the COBA women want to create an Us Too movement. What about us? An Us Too movement, the neglected women that continue to do their jobs, even in the midst of such crisis and debilitating uh, environments uh, uh, in the jails. What are, what are we doing to them? What are we doing for them? Mm-hmm. And this is my way to help them. This is my way to right this horribly, horribly wrong situation. Well, another another major instance, as you said, of um, some systemic issues and culture issues that seem to to really need some new leadership. And and as we've discussed, um, that leadership is is coming. Uh, a lot of a lot of messes that will need to be dealt with here by the next uh, next administration. Um, speaking of which, uh, the likely uh, victory of Eric Adams in the mayoral race. What are you most hopeful about? Um, other than other than some of what we discussed here, leadership of the police department, leadership of the correction department, um, what are you most hopeful about about a likely a potential Eric Adams mayoralty from where you sit right now? Um, what are the what are the either the types of leadership you're you're hoping for or specific uh, you know progress you're really uh, eyeing from an Adams mayoralty? Gosh, I, my hope is that we as a city come out of this pandemic bigger and better than we've ever been before. My confidence in our uh, Democratic nominee for mayor is in his plan to bring New York out of a pandemic and into stability once again, and not just stability, but bring us into abundance, to bring our tourism back, of course, to bring our our streets back, uh, our safety back, to bring the confidence in New York that the world has always had in New York, to bring that back. All of those things that were so great, um, that make New York great and make New Yorkers great. We need to bring New Yorkers back to New York. And I believe that uh, that he will do that. His outlook um, to, to, to bring us back to where we need to be and should be. Um, that is my, my hope. Um, for the incoming mayor and for his plans for all of us to come out of this thing prosperous and a better city. And um, you are uh, in the in the early, but this this stuff intensifies fast here as as November and December happen. Uh, but in the in the still still early phase, things things get very intense um, as we come out of the general election when when this uh, is the conversation. But um, the phases are, are moving here. The steps are moving for the, the race to become the next speaker of the city council. What's your, when you're talking with 
members like yourself who are expected to return, um, and then these dozens of new members that are coming in, what's your message to people when you say, I, here's, here's why I should lead this body. Here is, here is what it is about me that would make me the right speaker of the city council. Yeah, I, I happen to bring to the table um, a vast background, uh, not just on the political side, but also in uh, corporate America. <laughs> I have uh, over 20 years in the private sector in executive management and training in education. Um, and then we fast forward to uh, my grassroots work in the community. I'm a former chairperson of a community board, the second largest community board in Queens. Uh, I came into that community board and was immediately appointed as education chair for that community board. And uh, two years later, I was elected to chair that community board and became elected to the New York City Council in my third term as chairperson of Community Board 12 Queens. Um, I've got a vast background, as I said, uh, in moving things, making things happen, um, in, in, uh, in the ways of our legislation, the things that we just discussed over these last few minutes, that takes leadership. Um, but the, the main message that I bring to my colleagues when I'm speaking to them about my candidacy and my hope to be the first black speaker of, uh, of the New York City Council, something that's never been done, by the way, it's 2021. Um, and that I'm very encouraged by that prospect. And I let my colleagues know that I bring with me um, a very strong education background and a basis of organization, something that's helped me a great deal in my four years in the City Council. I've been able to organize myself. I've been able to organize uh, staff in two separate offices during a pandemic. And I've been able to bring home the bacon to a district that I promised to get our money back when I walked into a disaster left by my predecessor in District 28. So uh, I've, I've been able to make those wins both inside of the doors of the city council and outside of the doors when it comes to making my district um, more, more uh, 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 abundant you know, uh, giving my district things that we've never had before, the funding that we've never had before. We're looking at, I just brought in $26 million in uh, fiscal 22. Along with that comes, comes development of a brand new um, stadium for August Martin High School, $11 million. We're refurbing um, the whole uh, uh, track and field to make, make, it, make its heyday back, bring its heyday back. That's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> to where it used to be back in the day. Uh, where we've just uh, uh, got uh, $10 million um, for the Education Equity Plan, Education Equity Action Plan, which will bring $10 million to uh, start a brand new uh, Black Studies curriculum for all New York City students, all students. And that happened because of the work of uh, Black educators who have been working on this for so long, bringing a proposal to, to the BLAC caucus. Uh, and the BLAC caucus taking that and running with it, and myself being a member of the budget negotiating team, bringing that to the BNT as far as a proposal and request, which was accepted overwhelmingly by my colleagues, $10 million to make this happen, um, to also handle professional development for our educators that will, that will uh, teach this curriculum. So there are so many examples of leadership that I'm proud of. I bring this 
to the table, to my colleagues. And um, I'm very excited about the prospect. And, and just in our last couple of minutes here with City Council Member Adrian Adams, um, how much is you, how much does your relationship with Eric Adams uh, help you? Are there any conversations where it hurts you, where there's people who say, well, the city council really, you know, we got to be careful how close we are to the next mayor. We really have to be a counterweight. How does that relationship helping you? Do you think um, you can rely on him to, to uh, you know, make some calls for you as it gets into crunch time, you know, in this internal race where, you know, he's obviously got a lot of sway as the likely next mayor? I am, I am more than happy that my high school friend um, will be our most likely mayor of the city of New York. And Again, caveat, anything could happen here. We're not, we're not making predictions, but we're, we're judging by the one poll we've seen and That's the overwhelming right. democratic enrollment advantage. So we'll see That's what right. happens, but yeah. anyway, yes, go ahead. And That's all we can do. Yes. Uh, likewise with that thought, Ben, uh, I am not, you know, you know, throwing my chips in and saying, you look, it's me, it's me, it's me, because I'm not, number one, I'm not that, that type of person. I can stand on my own merit and my own morals and my own work um, and everything that I've done in my own capacity over these past four years and beyond. Um, so I'm not really looking for any, any kind of gimmies um, from, uh, from the borough president, from the Brooklyn borough president. Um, I will not deny that I am, very, very happy to know him for as long as I have uh, and have faith in his ability, as I've said, to lead this city and to bring us out of a pandemic unheard of. Uh, I'm not asking him to make any calls for me. So that answer is also no. I don't tout, you know, our uh, long time, you know, relationship. I don't tout that too often other than just to say that we've known each other since high school. That's all I say. And I, I leave it there. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I am hoping that, you know, however, you know, uh, this may fall, however the chips may fall, that for my merit, um, and for my leadership capabilities, the things that I have done in the past, what I've done for my district more than any other of my predecessors, and what I've brought in leadership to the New York City Council over the past four years, that is what I'm standing on to become the next speaker of the New York City Council. All right, and let me ask you in closing, um, there, was, there was a very interesting discussion out there in, in Southeast Queens in the mayoral primary where you had Representative Gregory Meeks throw his weight behind Ray McGuire in the primary. Lots of, uh, one or two other officials did so as well, but lots of you out there went with, with Eric Adams as you're getting at, he's not just a son of Brooklyn, he's also a son of Queens um, where he spent a lot of his youth. Um, is there any residual, uh, tension over that? Is there any, any issues there, you know, as you're looking to sort of make sure you have your, your home base support with Representative Meeks and others, any, any residual tension over those mayoral uh, endorsements in the primary? What a great question. Oh, There, wow. no, there, <laughs> there really has not been any resentment, uh -huh. you know, um, during the primary season at all. We all were very honest about where we stood. My county leader was very honest about where he stood as far as his candidate for mayor, uh, and as far as his support for me to be speaker, by the way, I have full support, you know, of my county leader and have, uh, he's okay. one of my mentors, so have for a very long time. So no, we had a, a wonderful event in Queens a uh, few nights ago. Everybody was there. Um, no matter who the primary candidate was in the past, 
past is past. And now we're looking on to elect Eric Adams as the next mayor of New York City. All right. Important note there. Yes, I should have said Representative Meeks, who's also the, the county chair, uh, yes. should, have, should have mentioned that. And that's uh, important to note that he's he's behind you in this bid to become the next speaker. All right. We've got lots more to discuss down the line, but we'll leave it there. Uh, City Council Member Adrian Adams, thank you for the time and we'll we'll be in touch. A pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much.